Hi there, folks, and welcome. Welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Zivna Kajimam, again. And this podcast is brought to you, among others, by Native Shark, which is an online platform for learning Japanese. And what Native Shark do is they make learning Japanese really, really simple. So you just show up, click a button that says study now, and the platform will then show you exactly what you need to learn next based on your progression. Now, this may sound simple and in practice it is, but the way it's designed means that students who use Native Shark once a day for four to five months can complete the equivalent of over two years of university study. And what they're also unique in is that they teach all of the types of Japanese that you wouldn't normally get in traditional schools or textbooks. And if you've ever studied with one of the more common textbooks that foreigners usually pick up, you've probably noticed that there are a lot of sentences or conversations in there. That you'd never really hear in real life, and vice versa. Some of the stuff you actually hear when you're out and about in Japan is never really covered in these traditional textbooks. So, this isn't the case with Native Shark. It's very well grounded in everyday spoken Japanese, whether it's casual or formal language. And you can really expect, like one of the students writes in their reviews, you can really expect to be picking up the sort of little nuances that no one would expect a non native speaker to use. And that's pretty rare for most Japanese courses. So, yeah, really, really useful platform. And since you've heard about it here on the podcast, you also get an extra little bonus. If you sign up using the URL nativeshark.com forward slash NTI, we'll link to it in this episode's show notes. That's native without an E, so N A T I V shark, all one word, dot com forward slash NTI. Use that link to sign up and you'll get a double length free trial. So, two weeks free instead of the one. And you can sign up for that free trial without having to put any、uh, credit card or anything of the sort in there. So give it a go, you won't regret it. And if you'd like to be a sponsor and get your product or service or project in front of our listeners, we're up to about 20,000 downloads annually now. And these are all people who are either living in Japan or have some level of interest or affiliation with the country. So feel free to reach out and ask us about our sponsorship programs. They're very affordable and they produce very good results, as our existing sponsors can hopefully testify to. Okay, so today we've got a really fun conversation for you between yours truly and、uh, Pariksha Chawla, or PC, good friend and fellow international real estate professional from Malaysia, soon to be moving to London. And he's asked me to be a guest on his new LinkedIn live show, Keeping It Real Estate. And we had a nice long chat about Japan's real estate market, obviously, but also about more personal stuff like our own businesses, working remotely, the various、um, language and cultural differences between living and working in Japan as opposed to other countries around the world, and also a fair bit about our own personal lives, entrepreneurship, and even about relocating your pets when moving abroad. And PC's dog Coco also makes an appearance, as do、um, several embarrassing photos of myself. So, if you'd like to see our faces as we speak, catch a glimpse of Coco or some of those cringe worthy pics、uh, of my family and me, feel free to hop onto our YouTube channel and watch the video instead of listening to this recording. We'll link to it in this episode's show notes, as well as to、uh, PC's profile in case you want to get in touch with him. Now, his side of the conversation is a bit on the quiet side.、Um, PC, take note, brother. You really need to get yourself a proper mic. But as usual, I'm the one doing most of the nonstop talking, which is what I'm best at, much to the、uh, chagrin of my partner, Chikako. So enjoy the conversation, and I shall see you again on the other side.
Hey, 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 Ziv, how's it going? Glad to hear you. Go ahead, man. How about now? I can hear you just fine. How's it going? Good, good, man. How are you? I'm doing well. Sorry about that. Just working out some little glitches as we try and figure out how LinkedIn works. But yeah. anyway, thanks for doing this. And, you know, before we start, just a big um, shout out to everyone, uh, you know, who's been supporting um, this little experiment of mine for the last couple of weeks. Thanks for all your comments. And what this is essentially is just a series of interviews or conversations, you know, with some of my friends and contacts in the real estate industry. Um, you know, we spoke with one of my friends, Taco, um, a real estate coach from the Netherlands who's been in Malaysia for the last few years in episode one. And today we're lucky enough to have Mr. Ziv Magan, Ziv Nakajima Magan, from Fukuoka in Japan. So, Ziv, again, back to you. How is it in Japan right now? How are you doing? Um, getting hot, getting vaccinated very slowly. So, um, hopefully looking good. Maybe by sometime next year, we'll be able to get out and about again. <laughs> okay. And for those who don't know where Fukuoka is, could you just give them a little brief geographically speaking? Yeah, so Fukuoka is the biggest city in Western Japan on the Kyushu landmass. Um, so people probably are more familiar with uh, Nagasaki, which is on the landmass, but um, Fukuoka is actually a lot bigger. There about a million and a half people population-wise and a very active international airport. And it's actually a lot closer to um, Southeast Asia or definitely to uh, Taiwan and Korea and parts of China than it is to Tokyo even. So it's kind of like the Western gateway into Japan. Right. Okay, so let's uh, go back a bit. And I've known you for almost about five or six years now, um, yeah. a couple of companies ago. And I was introduced to you by one of my mutual friends, uh, one of our mutual friends, uh, Manabu. Yep. Uh, Manabu Suzuki, who is very well known to the leading RV network and has uh, been a good, good friend of ours. So now let's go back a bit. Now, where are you originally from? And how, give us a little gist into your journey into real estate and how you came to Japan. Okay, so I was born and bred in Israel. Um, and in, the, in my late 20s, I migrated to Australia and sort of followed the old family connection there. And I lived there for about 10 years. Um, and that's when I uh, first met Japanese people. I didn't know anything about Japan. I actually uh, was exposed to Japan in Australia. Yeah. And um, um, my wife, who was Japanese, whom again, I met in Australia, my wife at the time, uh, unfortunately, passed away a little bit after our son was born. So that was uh, 2011. And um, I had a real estate property at the time. So I had a little bit of experience with managing tenants and that sort of thing with a single property. And when I looked to invest, uh, I, what I wanted to do is to keep the um, Japan connection alive for my son. Right. So I was looking into some ways to invest into Japan so that I would have an excuse to come and go and live here and um, have something, a financial foothold or, or uh, just a reason to, to be in touch with Japan. Yeah. And uh, just knowing real estate a little bit, I started looking into real estate, which was what I felt most comfortable with at the time. And um, in the process, I met my uh, then 
just business partner and now my second wife, Chikako. And uh, we bought a few properties for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was interested in more international business uh, exposure. I was interested in a Japanese partner. So it worked out well. We bought a few investment properties for ourselves. And after we had three or four of those uh, under our belt, we sort of realized that there are probably quite a few people out there who'd be interested in the same sort of investment, but just don't have the access because Japan is very insular uh, on a language and cultural level. Yeah. Um, And that's how we started uh, NTI, which is the company that we've been running for the past decade or so. Fantastic. And, you know, before we started actually talking about doing this, I actually had you send me a most embarrassing picture that you could think of. No, 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 don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to embarrass you in some way. I haven't seen you for so long. But so tell me, who is this guy and how old is he and what's he thinking right now? Uh, Well, this guy would be 18 in two or three months. So he's just joined the army, which isn't really a choice in Israel. It's mandatory. We all have to do that. Um, As combative as the uh, picture might look, he actually went to a a military programmer's course. Um, But the uniform looks cool, doesn't it? Um, Yes. So um, he flunked the programmer's course. (laughs) Um, that that didn't deter him so he did all sorts of things in the army until he finished his service and then he was still determined to uh, go on with programming when he went out of the army and he went to study that again um, as a civilian and graduated and even got a job as a programmer but very quickly realized this really wasn't for him because he likes to um, he likes to uh, run his mouth and talk to people all day long which is pretty much what I've been doing since that day oh yeah we know we know about that (laughs) So then let's jump ahead a little bit, right? So now you are now in Japan. Um, your company uh, is called Nippon Tradings. Um, and I've had the benefit of, you know, visiting your office, spending time with you in Fukuoka, going around uh, and looking at the wealth of opportunities. So in a nutshell, in brief, how would you describe your current business and who do you cater to? What is the business all about? Okay, so again, the the main point, I mean, the reason for our existence, um, which is also the same reason for a lot of businesses uh, that are Japan-related and foreigner-related, is um, somebody needs to bridge the gap. Because if you think about real estate markets all over the world, um, uh, which is probably what your listeners are more familiar with, let's say you go to the Philippines or to any non native English speaking country or to Thailand or to China, there'd always be a a gamut of real estate operators who are really, really happy to work with foreigners and they'd have English speaking staff. And it becomes a matter of just sifting through them and figuring out who the reliable ones are. In in Japan, the opposite holds true. So most of the professionals, I'd say 90% of the professionals you'd be working with are completely reliable. There's no sifting required, but The sifting that is required is to find the ones that will agree to work with foreigners and who can communicate in any language other than Japanese. And that's very rare here. So if you look at Tokyo, for example, there's maybe uh, 10 or a dozen real estate related companies, property managers, real estate agents, what have you, that can service foreigners. If you uh, go down the road to Osaka, there's maybe two or three or four of those. Fukuoka has one or two. And the uh, smaller, and these are not small cities by any means. So the, unless you're investing in very foreigner um, 
internationally savvy locations like in the heart of Tokyo or in Niseko, which is like a really popular international ski village up in Hokkaido or next to right next to a U.S. Army base. In those locations, you'd probably be able to find somebody to work with. Right. And, but in all other locations, if you're um, non-Japanese, um, maybe 50% of the agents will agree to work with you. If you don't speak the language, it goes down to maybe 20 or 10%. And if you're residing overseas, it's close to 0%. Um, they're just extremely foreigner shy. So what we as a company do for anyone who's interested in buying or purchasing or managing property in Japan is you're going ahead with the embarrassing pictures, aren't you? You just you um, just keep on yeah, plowing well, ahead. The thing is, this is Chicago, yes. your life partner. This is your business partner as well. So I feel Correct. It's to highlight the critical level of work that you do, and also the amount of fun that you have. <laughs> we usually look a bit more serious than that when we work, but yes. There you do. Yeah, this is Chicago, and even today, I mean, after ten years living in Japan, and I speak at least rudimentary Japanese or street Japanese, maybe is what I like to call it. Still, if I was make, if I was to make the first contact with a real estate agent or a property manager and say, uh, hi, I've got foreign customers and we want to buy property or we have properties, will you manage them for us? Um, I'd get 90% no's just for the fact that I don't speak business Japanese. I don't do things properly. My face is non-Japanese. Um, so there really has to be a so what we do is we provide the Japanese side with a, a Japanese presence and a company to deal with. Right. Uh, Chikako or her staff will be making the first contact. And one of the first things they have to do is to promise that agent or that property manager or that insurance company, they have to promise them that they'll never have to speak to a foreigner. They'll never, ha never have to read or produce any uh, documents in English. Everything will be done through us. Right. And on the uh, foreigner side, which is my side of the company, is um, we bridge that gap for them. So we give the, um, whether they're investors or holiday homeowners, whatever they're looking at, we give them a single point of contact to work with, everything in English. Um, they don't need to contact three or four or five different Japanese companies. They don't have to get lost in translation. Right. Um, and just the market is a lot more open to them, whereas if they have to work with the foreigner-specific companies, um, they'd have access to maybe five, ten percent of the market. Okay. So no, and and you know what? Thank you for that. And I know firsthand from you and some of uh, my other friends that the real estate market in Japan is actually incredibly lucrative. And actually, is on the surface, it's quite friendly to foreigners because it allows freehold ownership, and there are really no restrictions on buying and selling and transacting property over there, like there are in some of the countries. But yes, you do need local representation. It helps to have somebody who speaks the language and knows their way around. So tell me something. So when you first came to Japan, how many years has it been now? Um, 18, 17, 18 years. Oh, wow. Um, so when you, when you first got the green around the ears with a little bit of knowledge of Japan and you just want to, so did you get into real estate right away or did real estate come at a later stage? Much later. So first I was living in Australia and again, I was married to a Japanese lady and we, we came and went. We went, came to visit the parents. We made some friends in Japan. We'd come here maybe once or twice a year for a visit, but we were still living in Australia. Right. And at that point, um, real estate was the furthest thing from my mind. I mean, I was working in IT project management um, before I left Israel and then in IT um, uh, tech support or company installations when I lived in, uh, in Australia. And then when she got pregnant, we opened the import, export and market stall business. So we were kind of like doing the hippie trail, going to festivals and markets and so forth and selling um, 
accessories and bags and jewelry, stuff like that, just so that we could work together and spend time together. So nothing to do with real estate. That all started um, when I was looking again to invest in Japan. So much, much later, about uh, 10 years ago. Okay. Okay. And then when you started, like, was, did you jump straight into Nippon trading? So did you try working with the local agency first? Or what was your first foray into Japanese real estate like from the other side, not as an investor? Um, well, we only purchased our first three properties that we purchased were investment properties. Um, at the time, they were um, very cheap. They're still cheap in various areas of the country, but not in Fukuoka, where we bought our first three. Right. Um, so we worked with the uh, agents and we worked in, uh, on a personal capacity. It was just our own investment properties for our own portfolio for, for just to generate some sort of income in Japan. Right. And then we started doing the same thing on behalf of customers. And a lot later down the track, maybe two or three years after we started, then we bought our own personal residence and there are then our office. Um, and then we bought a few more investment properties, sold our personal residence, bought another one. Um, so we actually started with investing. We were still renting when we, we we owned investment properties before we owned our own home. Right. So the end goal is to have a business um, and have your own investment properties coming up from where you draw passive income and then also have you know good capital release in like a few years and reinvest and so on. Or what's in the future? Would you like to become a developer at some stage or a large-scale investor? Um, first of all, I, I want to drop the passive income. There's, it is not passive income. It's time-consuming okay. and there's hassles involved and decisions to be made. It's passive in the sense that you can, you know, you can take a nap. You don't actually have to work during the night and the income is still accruing, but there's nothing passive about it. But right. the goal is no. I don't think the goal will be development. I mean, we've we've expanded our services beyond um, when we started. The the most popular asset class was just like cheap investment units, like little condo units, studios, one bedrooms, and so forth. Um, we've since expanded with market demand. So when people contact us and they ask us about small buildings, we'll help them with the building. If they want to buy a, a onsen resort, we'll help them with that. If they want to buy a holiday home, there's been a lot of that lately. Uh, we'll help them with that. So I think, and we also help them with organizing. Uh, so we'll help them uh, buy a prefab house and put it on the property. We'll help them to furnish the property. We'll help them with renovations, repairs, that sort of thing. And um, with developments, if there's a need for it, we probably get into it uh, again as a third party operator, not as a developer ourselves. Yeah. Um, but I think the real, this is distant future now, but I think the real, um, long-term game plan is maybe to provide the same sort of service in other countries that are not as accessible. So to try and replicate the model of what we've done in Japan in, uh, for example, Italy, uh, Chikako's lived in Italy for a year. She loves the country. Um, she speaks the language uh, kind of like I speak Japanese, I guess at the same level. You mentioned um, that she speaks more than just a couple of languages, right? She's a polylinguist. Uh... She definitely speaks more than me. She speaks uh, Italian, French, obviously English and Japanese. Um, I'm limited. Well, I speak Hebrew, but there's not much demand for that in my line of work. But um, yeah, English and very rudimentary Japanese. A little bit of Arabic, but just like a high in curse words and so forth. And um, so, yeah, so maybe to replicate the same model in other countries that we find attractive to visit once in a while. Um, so Italy, um, 
maybe Israel at some point, maybe other countries in Asia. I mean, once you've, once you've managed a portfolio remotely, um, I think the fundamentals are pretty much the same. I mean, they're, they're obviously building blocks that are different in every country, but once you get the hang of um, selecting a team that knows what they're doing on the ground in that country. And once you know that your due diligence is more about the people that you work with than it is about the properties themselves, right? you can, after some studying, you can replicate that model in other countries and environments as well, I think. Okay. Well, getting back to like life in uh, Japan. So now yeah. for all of us guidance, whenever we come over there, you know, we come, it's all about the food, all about the drinks, all about nights out, you know, in between, you know, lots of meetings and so on. So, but on a day-to-day basis, what yeah. is a typical day at work for you? Because you've given me, you've given me multiple sides. I've seen this side of you. Yeah. And I think I have never seen this side. Ziv, the amazing public speaker actually. <laughs> so... Tell me about how do you flip-flop between this, but going back, like what is an average day at work for you? It really depends on the season. And obviously now with COVID, everything's flipped over again. Um, Usually because I'm on the customer side of the business and our customers are mostly overseas and they're in different time zones and most of the communication would be done via email or Skype. Um, So these public speaker gigs that you see um, is... Actually, they're aimed at the the smaller part of our clientele, which is the expats who actually live in Japan. Right. Okay. So about 80% of our customers live out of Japan. When they come here, they come here like you do. They come here to meet us or other business partners or maybe to take a walk around the neighborhood where they're interested in. Or, um, But they don't actually come here for property purchases. So the vast majority of communication is done online, um, Skype or Zoom or emails, uh, messaging and so forth. Um, But if and when there is a demand from expats who are looking for a local expert, then yes, I do. uh, I do occasionally do seminars or public speak, uh, public speeches in um, various venues, wherever there's a need for it. And um, I do the podcast. So the Japan Real Estate podcast comes out once a week. Um, I think it's the only podcast on that topic. So it's pretty popular. Um, and occasionally videos like this one. So you see my top half. I'm looking kind of like I look in the uh, public speak gigs, but we don't want to look at the bottom half. But yeah. Well, I, I actually have an alternative image for you. So I'm <laughs> going on over here, whether you asked to model through a fruit shop or something, or this is a, a wedding. wedding hat designer, wedding hat designer. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. So- that was hilarious, actually. That was the advantage of sometimes wearing a suit. I went to a, I went to a bar with a customer who came to visit, and while we were drinking at the bar, this uh, photographer, Japanese photographer, approached me, and uh, he really liked the look of the suit. So he asked me if I would model for his catalog. Worst paying job ever. I don't know uh, how models make a living, but I got a really nice book of photos of it. You got some fruit to it, I guess. Yes. <laughs> So, you know what, you know, right now, you know, you mentioned like COVID and of course it's taken over the world and it's been awful um, for all kinds of businesses, especially the real estate sector, which depends a lot on interpersonal contact. But going by what you said and going by what I know about you, even before COVID, your model was catered towards expats living in Japan, but you did get a significant or at least a 
a, a comfortable number of inquiries from outside Japan as well who would contact you? Most of them are out of Japan, actually. Our, our, okay. our Japan resident clientele is maybe 20% of our business. Vast majority are out of Japan, and that's been the case from the get-go. So okay. it, we were actually working remotely, at least on the customer side, uh, from the very start. When we started the business the first uh, year or so, we were actually still in Australia. So we came here to meet the Japanese partners, because in Japan, you do have to have face-to-face meetings. They're a lot uh, a lot less accepting of remote work. Yeah. Um, but the customer side were always remote. It actually blew my mind when we started that people will fork out hundreds and tens of thousands of dollars to people that they've never met except on a Skype call. Yeah. Uh, but I, I quickly got used to it. And that's been the, that's been the case uh, forever for us. So COVID has, hasn't actually done. It's actually been... Um, very good for our business because prices are down and people are buying like crazy. So, but do people still feel the need to actually come and visit properties? You know, like other people saying, waiting in the wings and saying, look, I can't come right now, but maybe 2022 when things are better, I'll come. And how is the market changing? Is the market, is the market moving slow? Is it quick? It really, depends, like what's it's really depends on the sector by sector kind of uh, outlook. Uh, some sectors are doing very well. Some sectors are not. So residential, which is always considered a sort of safe and stable haven, uh, is actually up, I think, uh, about 70% in transactions okay. uh, since 2020. Um, hospitality obviously took a huge hit. Um Retail took a more minor hit, but they were already suffering with the rise of e-commerce before 2020. Yeah. Um, But other sectors, I mean, data centers are still on the up and up. Logistics are still on the up and up. And same same sort of story. I mean, e-commerce is only getting hotter and hotter with COVID. And um, assisted living, senior nursing homes, um, doing very well. Um, and that's probably not going to change with Japan's population trend being what it is. Yeah. What is what is the favorite asset class? Um, and I know that's maybe like a hard net to throw out. But if you had to pick, like, what, what do you think is the favorite asset class of most investors coming into Japan? Um, for smaller investors, it's usually residential condos or small residential uh, buildings. Right. And bigger investors like, I mean, depends on who they are. Institutional investors love the office space in Japan. Central Tokyo, Central Osaka, Central Fukuoka, Central Nagoya office buildings are very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest of them depends on how opportunistic they are. A lot of people have been trying to get into logistics, uh, shipping centers, warehouses on the outskirts of big cities and so forth. Um, that's getting harder and harder. It's a very hot market segment at the moment. So there's huge demand and very little supply. Um, but I think if you want to run averages, the very, very top popular asset class is condos, um, not necessarily houses, because houses in Japan are built from uh, non-durable materials. Um, part of it is the earthquake. Part of it is the fact that Japanese like everything new. So they're built from um, wood, still framed wood, not a lot of stone, not a lot of concrete for the houses. Yeah. Um, so you're pretty much rebuilding them every 20 or 30 years. And maintenance costs are a lot higher than they would be. Whereas if you're buying um, units in condo in reinforced concrete blocks, or you're buying a whole reinforced concrete block, and um, the maintenance aspect is a lot more attractive. It's a lot more stable income. So um, I'm actually want to get back to the house. Yeah. I actually had a question about that. Um, 
And we're just going by condos right now. So am I right to assume that most people actually come in and they look for condos or like affordable condo investments in the big cities like Tokyo, Osaka, and now of course Fukuoka since you're there. Um, or are they looking at other like cities as well that are up and coming? It really depends on the investor and what they're after and also on whether they're going to be using it for um, their personal purposes or not. So a lot of people like to buy a condo in a place which they know that they're going to visit on a regular basis and then lease it out short term in the interim. Right. So in those cases, they'll usually aim for particular cities, not necessarily the big ones. I mean, there's a lot of people married to a Japanese spouse who want to come here regularly and visit, uh, you know, aging relatives or brothers or sisters. And these people might be out in the countryside. So in that case, they'll go for the biggest city that can give them a good tenant base, but that's close enough to those relatives. Yeah. Um, others, if they're just out for the best possible bargain, highest possible yield, they leave it to us, in which case we'll probably... In most cases, I mean, the last two years since COVID hit, we have been seeing good deals out of central Tokyo and Osaka, but that's usually the rarity. So in most cases, we'd be pointing them to Nagoya, Fukuoka, Kyoto, and prefectural capital satellite cities, um, places that are close enough to the big cities to enjoy the same dynamics, but are actually more affordable and provide better yields. So if you look at Tokyo, for example, that would be Kawasaki, Yokohama, Chiba City, Saitama City. Okay. If you're looking at Osaka, it might be Kobe. Um, and then prefectural capitals. So like uh, places like Kumamoto and Nagasaki, even though the population there is in decline, actually. And Sapporo, which is also an interesting one. Um, you can get higher yields there because property prices haven't climbed as sharply as they have in other places around the country. Um, but on the downside, because of the long, uh, harsh winters there, it's heavier on the maintenance and longer on the vacancies. If you happen to lose a tenant um, towards the start or middle of winter, you probably got five, six months of vacancy ahead of you. Right. People just don't like to move around in the snow. Yeah. Um, on condos themselves, now there's, I, I don't know if this is a rumor or if this is actually a fact, so maybe you can help clear it up. But a lot of even my contacts have actually said this to me is that Japanese condos, the older they get, the less valuable they are. And at some stage, you know, the construction gets devalued over a period of time. Now, is that true or, or is that more of, say, like a case by case basis if it's true? It is true when they get very old. But what people are usually referring to, and there's a bit of a confusion there, is the tax depreciation life cycle. Okay. So from a tax depreciation perspective, a reinforced concrete block reaches the end of its lifespan after 47, 47 years, I think, from memory, at which point you can't claim depreciation on the structure anymore. But what gains value or holds value in Japan is the land. It's got nothing to do with the structure itself. So if you look at Fukuoka, for example, when we started our business, one, I think very actually the first, the very first property that we purchased on behalf of a customer was in central Fukuoka in Hakata, right next, right next to uh, Canal City, which is uh, Kyushu's biggest shopping center. So really top location in the heart of the city, hugely coveted, never had a vacancy there, even though it's not even, a, I wouldn't even call it an apartment. It's 12 square meters. It's like a closet, but there's always somebody who wants to rent it. Right. And when we purchased the second property in the same building, which was about six or seven years later, um, it's more than double the price. Now, that building was built in 1971, so it's definitely at the end of its depreciation life cycle. 
Right. Um, but what's attractive and what drives the prices is the location and the rental yield that they can command. Mm. Okay. Um, but at, at a certain, I mean, if look, if the building is, we generally don't recommend buildings these days that are older than 30 years, um, not because the tenants wouldn't want them, but because there's a new legislation coming in that's going to put a lot more uh, obligations on uh, owner unions to properly renovate the buildings. Right. If they want to get a compliance certificate, which means that either they'll have to hike up building fees significantly to, to allow for those re renovations, or they might choose not to go with the compliance, in which case the value might drop off a cliff because there's going to be a market for um, certified and non-certified properties at some point. Okay. So we recommend not to go beyond 30 years. And if you go beyond 40 or 50 years, then obviously it becomes a lot less attractive to the tenants. But mm -hmm. um, up until that point, they're cash cows. I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider that. Speaking of cash, and just a really, really quick question regarding like financing for overseas buyers. Is that only for uh, foreigners who become Japanese residents who are actually living in Japan or can say if I living in any part of the world wanted to buy some property in Japan, could I get a loan? Um, up until two years ago, there were the answer was 100% no. Um, about two, three years ago, some products and some lenders started offering various um, loans for non-resident foreigners. Okay. But they're all still very early stages, not super attractive. So you have to set up a local Japanese company, uh, which by itself um, means you have to pay at least two or three thousand bucks a year in, in company upkeep and accounting and bookkeeping fees. Okay. And then the loan terms are not super attractive. It's somewhere between three to four percent, which is not horrible. But these days, especially with COVID, they'll only consider central Tokyo properties um, of newish build, and they'll insist that you only use them for long-term leases. You're not allowed to Airbnb. You're not allowed to have commercial tenants, um, and all of that just doesn't end up being very attractive to a foreign investor. So, if you're going to be investing in Central Tokyo, um, your yield would be three to four percent best with those criteria, right? And they can get that in their backyard, so there's not really a need for them to purchase here. Okay, so like you mentioned, like if they're, say, married to a Japanese citizen or living there or maybe want to spend a significant amount of time in Japan for one reason or the other, it makes sense. Going to like houses, and this is something I wanted to ask you because I saw you in a recent podcast or in a recent interview. And of course, there's been a lot of news over the last couple of years about um, abandoned homes in Japan. Yeah. I think they're called Akiyas, if correct. Akiya, yeah. Akiya. So... Again, in a nutshell, um, what is the myth behind the Akia? Do they exist? Are they as cheap as, you know, people make them out to be? And what's the opportunity there for like foreign um, investors if they want to get into something like that? Well, they definitely do exist um, and they can be very cheap if you're the DIY type and you're gonna you're taking on this labor of love of, of uh, renovating the place and, and bringing it up to speed. 
Yeah. Um, but even, I mean, even if you're buying something livable, you could, uh, if you're lucky and if you've got the right people, uh, like the company that we usually recommend are Akia and Inaka. They do a great job of uh, investigating these properties based on people's criteria. Yeah. And then they can help you find a very cheap property um, that would probably be livable or be easily renovatable into a livable property. But these were not going to be investments. So the only way to make them work as investments is if, because they're in the countryside, right? Being in the countryside right. in Japan uh, means there's no way you're going to get long-term tenants. That just doesn't exist out there. People either own their properties or they just don't live in that place. Um, so you could potentially turn it into a guest house or like a resort kind of place. But if you've purchased in a place that's very cheap to purchase in, it means that the place is not really attracting too many tourists to begin with. Fair enough. Just going back to the IKEA concept, um, yeah. why do people actually abandon houses in Japan? I mean, is it is it something like if, if, if like, say, for example, from maybe like an American or some other Western country perspective, say there's a town that's where yeah, maybe it was like some like Detroit, Michigan, which is like the car capital of the world, and all of a sudden this, uh, the city stopped doing well, so people just left and went for greener pastures. But these are like towns and countryside. So are people leaving because of economics or because of something else? Yeah, with, Japan's got the world's fastest declining population, right? It's getting very old very fast. Yeah. And what this means is that all of these little townships and villages um, are slowly emptying out and conglomerating into the bigger city centers that are in the vicinity. Um, and at some point, there's just no more facilities being provided to these locations, right? So the train starts running once a day instead of every hour or two. If you wanna, if you wanna go shopping, you have to drive a good few kilometers to the nearest shop, and it's not going to be any attractive prices like you get from the bigger networks. Um, if you got medical issues, you have to go to the city. So little by little, the people are just moving out as the um, as the provision of services dwindles away, um, and then those areas just completely lose their value unless somebody's done something to rejuvenate them or create some attraction there or, or move some businesses, they're just going to die out. And uh, then those properties become dirt cheap. I mean, yeah, it is yeah. true, but it, again, it's not an investment. So people have to really watch out um, when they think about it as such. It's definitely not an investment unless you're going to be actively running a business in the property. Got it. Got it. I mean, because there was this there was this flurry over the last year or so, especially in, in a lot of different countries where people were leaving big cities and actually going to like smaller towns, villages and so on, just so they could get away from like congested city centers and, you know, hectic living, especially during the time of COVID. And they could have like a more leisurely life while they could still work using Zoom, Facebook, I mean, Teams, yeah. what have you. Now... And I know, of course, living in Asia, that sometimes that's not the case, because if you look at, say, I come from India or I have friends in the Philippines or other countries where being in the city is really where the action is. That's where the money is. And the farther you leave the city, uh, it's not just jobs or money or businesses, but you're also saying no to like potentially better healthcare, care, um, education for your kids and so on. Now, is that the same in Japan as well? And the reason I'm same dynamics, is same dynamics. Um, probably even a bit, um, a bit more extreme here because the tendency here has been. I mean, COVID has put a little bit of a spin on that in the sense that people who can afford to, in the sense that they have a job that they can do remotely, 
um, do tend to look for places that are maybe more suburban or maybe even out of the city. Um, but it's not nearly as much as a trend as, as it is in Western countries. I mean, the um, the economy the economy here and the industry infrastructure is just not really built for remote work. The whole the whole society here is based on written handwritten documents, hand stamped documents. face-to-face meetings, relationship building, going out together for drinks with the boss or the customer or what have you. And and it will take a very long time for that to change, I think, if it ever will. Yeah. Did you, going back to your time in Japan, did you ever work for somebody else? Have you always sort of done your own thing since you got there? In Japan, no. I would not want to work for a Japanese company, I think. Is it because just... um, ideologically there's just too much of a clash between say what you believe in in terms of corporate culture or just your independence or uh, you know obviously we don't want to offend anyone but just what's your thought process um i mean look all, all i have is a uh, secondhand uh, witness reports from people who are working in japanese companies so uh, take take everything i'm saying with a grain of salt but there seems to be <laughs> far too much adherence to a uh, protocol and meetings and uh, waste of time paperwork and um, doing things the same way they've been done for decades and decades. And um, I personally don't work that way. And it's, I look, even running our own company, it's still a clash. Like I'd go to a meeting with Chicago and, um, you know, halfway through a very long and detailed explanation, I'd be going, okay, well, well can we do this and this? And she's like, wait, he's still talking. Wait, quiet. So, I I get it. Even running my own business, I don't think I'd be able to handle it as a as a staffer. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, once I've started working for myself, and this is not really a Japan thing. I mean, I've started this in Australia, uh, probably five or six years before I came here. Yeah. Once I've started, for me personally, working for myself, um, as stressful as it can be, and you know, as much as you don't really have a real holiday, even when you're a holiday, you're constantly working and on the weekend and what have you. Yep. Um, just the flexibility of being able to make um, business decisions and manage my schedule and uh, manage my workload and tasks is something that I wouldn't want to give up. So I'm very happy to work with third parties and partners and customers, which are kind of like my boss. Um, but I wouldn't want to work in an existing company structure, I think. But look, time will tell. I could be wrong. No, I get that. I get that totally. And knowing your personality, I don't see you fitting into sort of like a standard corporate structure. I see you doing your own thing. Maybe being a high-level consultant someday. I don't know. I, I did enjoy the corporate life when I was working in big corporations. This is mostly Israel. Before I left, um, I was working for um, quite a few very big companies. Okay. I mean, there's something intoxicating about having all these resources at your disposal, right? Like you, you think up some project and if you convince a couple of people, they'll give you millions of bucks to invest in it. (laughs) And so I I do miss that a little bit. And uh, the whole, the whole corporate, uh, uh, I don't want to call it politics, but the intrigue and the, uh, the various departments working together to make big things happen. I do miss that sometimes, um, but not enough to want to go back to it now. But I mean, like the idea of, you know, like putting together like an idea and doing something with it. So in our world, that usually translates into either doing your own construction, becoming a developer or setting up a fund to invest in different properties. And, you know, like there's many different ways that you get. Could you see yourself pulling your way towards any one of those avenues? 
Um, what I like to, we have tried to do some joint ventures with customers who don't. So we have a lot of customers who arrive as a team, right? So they could be family members, like in Asia, there's a lot of family offices, two brothers and a sister investing together, or they could be a couple or business partners. I just wanted to get into the picture. Hello. <laughs> yeah. This is Coco, eight months old, very excited. That's hey, Coco. So what's, what's Coco's role? Is he in development, property management? What does he do? Coco's in the relocation business because, as you know, we're moving to the UK in a few weeks. So yeah. <laughs> Coco's our good luck mascot right now. Actually, when we got her and living in, um, you know, you know me, I live in uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Um, we never actually pictured getting a dog. And uh, we got her like a few months ago, you know, especially, I mean, for the kids and for our, our own sanity and whatnot. And yeah. then the move just happened, but it never struck us, you know, we were going to leave her behind. So she's coming with us. So she's basically become the champion of our move. That's a bit of a mission to move with a pet, isn't it? It is. It is. But you know what? Having said that, and this is the one thing you know about our business is when you start tapping into it, you realize that it, it looks difficult on the surface, but then it's not It's not a problem that other people haven't had before. And the more yeah. I look at it and the more people I spoke with, I realized that, well, it's actually not that hard. The only thing is with her. Now she just has to be well-behaved in a 14-hour flight. From yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Well, she interrupted no, no, you're right. I'm not going to yeah. explain to that. <laughs> so to get back to your question, we have tried, because people have been inquiring, right? So people are saying, okay, well, I really want to get into, uh, for example, hospitality properties or a share house yeah. or a guest house, but I don't have the funds to do it on my own. Can you hook me up with other investors? So we have tried, um, but... Either it's not that they don't get along, but they don't seem to all be on the same page. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess the only other option would be for us to be running a fund on their behalf, and then we'd be making all the decisions and just giving them uh, periodical reports. Mm-hmm. Um, something that we might be interested in, but before we do that, um, I'm kind of Japanese in the sense that I like to get a bit more experience under my belt before I pitch a new project to people Um to more than one person. So we have a few more creative customers that are always saying, okay, well, what can we do that we haven't done before? So we'd much rather do this with one or two customers that we already know well and like each other. We've worked together. There's no, um, the the expectations are all there. We know what we're going to offer each other from the get-go. And once we've done two or three of these projects with a single or or a couple, and then we'd probably feel more comfortable offering it as a, as a fund or as a source project. That's massive, yeah. And I, and I think there could be a big future in that, you know, whether you call it fractional ownership or selling shares in a company. Mm-hmm. Or company or That's good, man. Well, listen, you know, we've been talking for almost like uh, almost an hour now. And, I think yeah. that, and the nice thing is whenever I talk to you, I feel that I could always talk on for more. But um, I'm just going to ask you this as we, you know, say our goodbyes for today. Um, what's next for you over the next couple of years? What is life looking like for you? And I leave you with this <laughs> warm, friendly picture. I don't know if she's being nice to the boy or if she's kicking him in the backside because he did something wrong. But do that to each other a lot. It's kind of the way they communicate. Um, I think that's Okinawa, by the way. If anyone's never been to Okinawa, there are, we've got a lot more beautiful pictures that don't include us, but it's a gorgeous place you should visit. Yeah. Um, I think for us, um, we need to get our act together um, systems and admin-wise. We've experienced, uh, we've experienced some very quick growth that we were totally not prepared for. 
So internally, our management systems um, are very old-fashioned and need to be upgraded. And the way we delegate tasks and uh, document them so that the next person who comes to work for us will be able to get them right um, is something that we need to work on. So we're probably going to put a damper on growth for a few years until we're sure that we can service all of our existing customers uh, the way they should be served. And after that, um, yeah, the sky's the limit. I don't know. We'll see. And then we get back to the good old times and hopefully I'll be able to stop by for a few drinks and for co-worker one of these days. These guys, Probably by the way, way, are all, uh, these guys, by the way, are all, um, the guy on the left is not even, uh, I mean, he is Japanese, but he's Brazilian Japanese. And uh, all of them have been our flatmates in Australia. So these are all friends from old backpacker days. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. Well, Ziv, um, thanks a lot for doing this, man. I appreciated it. And, um, you know, we'll catch you soon. And to everybody watching, thanks for watching. And if you have any comments, questions, you know, um, send those to me. And if you ever anybody wants to get in touch with Ziv, uh, Ziv, you have your email address on the screen right now. It's yep. uh, zmagan or zmagan at nippontradings.com. And nippontradings.com is his website if you want to look at other services and stuff that they offer. And you're also pretty active on Facebook, aren't you, Ziv? Yes, so Facebook and LinkedIn have been uh, really, really, really good for us. And uh, you can always find me there. There's only one person with my name out there anyway. So wherever you look out for me on uh, Google, I'm sure you'll find me. And that makes two of us. We both have very unique names. But mm. all right, brother. Listen, great talking to you. Uh, catch you soon. And thanks for doing this. Catch Pleasure. You Take care. Bye. Yeah. So there you go. You probably know way more about me than you ever wanted to at this stage. Hope we didn't put you to sleep. Now, before we go, we're also as always going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis or you are already in Japan on some sort of a more temporary visa and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one. And also, if you're considering setting up a local company or branch office of a foreign company and you've got any sort of business or visa related inquiry, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners and our clients. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com, all one word, and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, wherever you're tuning in from, or just drop us a line in the comment section or wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoshiku. Yoshiku.